Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. She'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundits Society. We've got a banger of an episode. Unfortunately, I'm a little stuffed up, so you guys will have to pardon the nasally congested voice that you're hearing over the airwaves today. It's a little more nasally than usual. I've got the crud. Seems like everybody around me is dropping like flies. I'm relatively healthy compared to them. I'm still kicking it, and although I'm feeling pretty bad, I'm still uh, able to go about my normal daily routine. So you guys take your vitamin C, drink your milk, you know, whatever it is, stay in school. And uh, yeah, hope that all of you are staying healthy through these harsh winter months that we are only just now finding ourselves underway. Anyway, we got a really great episode today. Joining us is veteran journalist David Dayan. That man has had articles and columns all over the place, but primarily these days you can find his work in outlets like The Intercept and in these times. And our chat today deals specifically with a piece that appeared in The Intercept a couple of weeks ago, and that dealt with some of the surprises that incoming progressive and democratic socialist uh, elected officials are going to face when they arrive in the halls of the House of Representatives in this particular case. Nancy Pelosi was able to hold on to leadership of the Democratic Party in the House as Speaker Uh, But in so doing, she hatched a deal with the Congressional Progressive Caucus that the progressives would have 40 percent, which is proportional, uh, proportionate to their numbers in the Democratic Party and the House of Representatives this year. They will have 40 percent of the seats in the various committees in the House of Representatives. And I know this is a Democratic Socialist podcast. We usually spend all of our time with our heads in the clouds talking about Marx and socialist transition and Poulancis and Gramsci and hegemony and all of these hyper theoretical conceptions about dual power versus the democratic road to socialism. And, you know, for this week, uh, we started this off with Daniel Marin's last week, but for this week in particular, we are really trying to get our heads down on, on the ground, right? We eyes down on the pavement to get to what I like to call the nitty gritty of realpolitik and politics as it exists in this fucked up society that we find ourselves in. And David Dayan is going to help us do that because all of these uh, successes, these victories that so many people on the ground and the grassroots have fought so hard for uh, and getting some of these people elected like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib, uh, all of these people across the, the, the country at the national level and the state level as well and the local level, they need to go into office and actually get things done. And that's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, as David and I are going to discuss throughout the entire episode. Getting into these key committees, what they call the money committees, as David will outline further on in the show, is an absolutely essential task for democratic socialists and progressives. And it's not really that sexy. You know, nobody wants to pour over tax code or look at, uh, you know, lines in the budget. Uh, When they enter the halls of power, they want to do the things that they've been doing their whole lives. Perhaps they want to fight for criminal justice reform. They want to fight for to reform and overhaul this brutal and vicious immigration system that we've got on our hands. But David Dane is going to make a very strong case for why it is that these people need to learn these kind of banal, uh, just boring 
yeah, you know, legal tax code types of uh, policies, because if we don't do that, we're not going to have access to the implementation of these policies that we all have come to cherish as progressives and socialists, which is to say, you know, Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, perhaps even the Stop Bezos Act, uh, much more ambitious acts like forgiveness of student loans, uh, nationalization of entire sectors, which is obviously on the horizon of a socialist agenda. So throughout this episode, we use the word progressive quite a lot. And I know that the P, we'll call it the P word. No, not, not that P word. Uh, this P word, progressive. <laughs> and I know a lot of it, it gives people the willies. And it gives me the willies, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm starting to get over it a little bit. And I want to make an argument here. And I think this is something that we want to keep returning to time and time again on Dead Pundit Society as we move forward. I now see the progressive as a kind of field of contestation much like the capitalist state, right? What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, I think one thing that we can say to kind of outline, to, to put some, some sort of meat on the scaffolding of that case is just to say that, you know, t- today's progressives are not the progressives of yesterday, right? I mean, there's no question that if there is an Overton window, it has shifted in a leftward direction in the past two to four years. The progressives of 20 years ago would not have dreamed of implementing or championing the policies that today's progressive uh, just sort of consider to be the cost of doing uh, the cost of getting through the door, right? You can't call yourself a progressive if you don't at least make signals or wave your hands in the direction of supporting something like Medicare for all. But that wasn't even on the agenda in the early 2000s when someone like Al Gore uh, held the mantle of progressive politics. His mealy mouth tax credit oriented environmentalism was sort of the standard bearer of progressivism in the the Democratic Party. Um, And although there were some shining lights and some rarities, you know, that people can sort of object to my claims here in a variety of ways, they can point to people like Dennis Kucinich. Uh, Barbara Lee uh, is the only person left who voted against the Iraq war, for example. Um, But there's there's another case. Uh, Barbara Lee was once a radical, an outspoken uh, you know, anomaly inside of the House of Representatives. And now she holds a key leadership post that was produced and created just for her on the Rules Committee. And so I think that socialists and democratic socialists of all stripes need to start dealing much more flexibly with this term progressive. Um, we on Dead Pundit Society have made strident arguments against progressives. And I think we're going to continue to do that. I mean, we need to be able to dis- distinguish and delineate a democratic socialist agenda from a progressive one. And for one, the easiest way to do that is just to insist that progressives believe that you can somehow tame capitalism, that you can produce a kinder, gentler capitalism that is rational and that is capable of dealing with people in an egalitarian way, producing fair, equal, um, just outcomes in a capitalist world order. And fundamentally, this is where socialists have to depart from their progressive brethren, right? We know that that capitalism is inherently crisis prone, and it only exists and functions by exploiting the labor of workers. And that is just an unacceptable arrangement, even under the best of times in a capitalist system. We're dealing with a fundamental injustice of exploitation and the way that uh, the politicians and the ruling class sets the workers against one, one another in order to continue uh, you know, their reign of terror. And that's where we fundamentally differ from progressives. 
And I want to insist on that difference. But in the meantime, this progressive field of politics, particularly in the halls of power in the United States Congress, it's a, it's a field of contestation that socialists need to take very seriously. This isn't about winning the progressives. This isn't about taking over the field, the terrain that progressives once occupied. But I would suggest that the space that we're going to create for a democratic transition to socialism is going to occur by continuing to push the progressives in a much more leftward and principled anti-capitalist direction. Because right now, as I've mentioned elsewhere, and I will mention later in the interview, progressives like the Justice Democrats are kicking our ass when it comes to having some groundedness and embeddedness in the halls of power. And we need to learn from them. We need to uh, adopt their tools, their, their tool set and then wield them for our purposes so that we can undo, undermine, untangle, um, dismantle this rapacious capitalist world order that we find ourselves living in. All right, so enough out of me. There's a little statement, a little preamble. We're going to get down with some progressive politics in this particular episode. Hold your nose if you got to. If you find yourself a Marxist, go read the Communist Manifesto afterwards to cleanse your palate. You'll be okay. You'll survive. Anyway, this is a bonus episode today. This is the second free show that you're finding here on the Dead Punnett Society catalog. And this is brought to you by our patrons. We have unveiled some really exciting new levels and tiers for our patrons, which is uh, the way that we diff, dish out and divvy up our rewards through the patreon.com platform. For $5, you'll receive access to our B-side. That comes out two to four times a month. We're going to try to do that on a much more regular basis in the coming weeks and months ahead. So you'll get that for $5 in addition to supporting the New Left Agenda and keeping our lights on. For $10 a month, you will receive access to the Weekly Rundown which is going to be a news and views shows from a socialist perspective. We're going to talk about the most important events of the day. We're going to tell you what you need to know. And then we're going to give you the socialist spin on things, right? I mean, you can, you can get the progressive spin from NPR, perhaps. Sometimes the Blue Dog's neoliberal centrist spin from NPR. You can get the uh, conservative spin from Fox News. But there aren't many places to go to get a principled socialist spin. And that's what the weekly rundown is going to provide. And for $15 or more per month, we are calling this our one hour's wage tier, the working class heroes tier. If you donate or contribute rather one hour's worth of your wage per month, you'll have access to our book club. We're going to run that every other month. You'll get access to the PDF copy of that particular book that we're that we're reading. And then we will iron out the details of what that book club is going to look like. We'll run that every other month. And we have a lot of people signing up for that. Really honored and flattered at that level of support. Really excited about the book club. We're going to be talking about the uh, Panich and Ginden book that we discussed with Leo Panich last week. And the details will be given out to the working class heroes in the coming weeks. All right, enough out of me. And uh, now a brief little interlude between this opening and my chat with David Dayan. I'm going to bring you a two or three minute clip from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Here she is going to be defending the Green New Deal and uh, the rhetoric that the right and the neoliberal center has developed to try to shut it down. And as she mentions, it's not going to work, folks. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a lioness and I am absolutely pumped to have somebody like her in the halls of power fighting for our needs. All right. Enjoy it. 
It's unsurprising that the response to any bold proposal that we have is to incite fear, to incite fear of loss, to incite fear of others, to incite fear of our future. But the only way we are going to get out of this situation is by choosing to be courageous. That's the only way we're going to get out of this. And when, first of all, it's just plain wrong. The idea that we're going to somehow lose economic activity, as a matter of fact, uh, it's not just possible that we will create jobs and economic activity by, tr by uh, transitioning to renewable energy, but it's inevitable that we are going to create jobs. It's inevitable that we're going to create industry. And it's inevitable that we can use the transition to 100% renewable energy as the vehicle to truly deliver and establish economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. That is our proposal. When we think about where we were when the New Deal was established, we were a nation in depression, in Great Depression. We were a nation on the brink of war. We saw the rise of fascism creeping across in, in, in Europe. And no one would thought that a nation so poor, so scarce, and, and so in such dire straits as we were in that time could pursue such a bold economic agenda. But we chose to do it anyway. We had the courage to do it anyway. And that is what this moment demands of us right now. That's what we have to do. We have to, this is going to be the great society, the moonshot, the civil rights movement of our generation. That is the scale, that is the scale of the ambition that this movement is going to require. But what Alexandria is talking about is that not only can we effectively combat climate change, but in the process, we can do good economics and create millions of good paying jobs here and throughout the world. This is the, the mechanism through which we can really deliver justice to communities that have been underserved. The water in Flint is still dirty. The water in Flint is still dirty. That children that are, that are choking on the smoke in California, we have injustices in this country. Those injustices are concentrated in frontline communities, in indigenous black and brown communities. They are the ones that experience the greatest depths of this injustice. But if we chose, and if we had the moral, political, and economic courage to say, we're gonna fix all the pipes in Flint, we would put a lot of people to work on, at that at the same time. And that is what this is about. Joining us on the line today is David Dayan. David is a contributor at The Intercept and In These Times magazine as well. He has a book out called Chain of Title, where he looks into the massive fraud that occurred on Wall Street in 2008-2009. It won the Studs Terkel Prize. Thank you so much for joining us on Dead Planet Society. Thanks for having me on. So you are a veteran journalist. You've been at this for many decades, uh, and uh, you've got a lot <laughs> Don't to date me, man. Come on, <laughs> I'm dating you for my primarily millennial audience, but I'm just I'm bigging you up here. You got a lot of interesting insights to offer today. Uh, as most of our listeners will know, we get really into the kind of heady theoretical stuff when we're talking about democratic socialism and progressive social, political, and economic change. But I think, you know, your recent piece in The Intercept from a couple of weeks ago that really delved into the ins and outs of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and the importance of committee seats and the kind of very banal, kind of boring, everyday activities of the House of Representatives and the Senate mm. really make all the difference in the world. 
And so I wanted to bring you on the show to kind of talk about this and educate our audience, give them a little civics lesson. <laughs> We're not going to talk about, uh, you know, a schoolhouse rock style, how a bill becomes a law, but we do need to talk quite a bit about the ins and outs of how progressive and socialist legislation ever has a chance to see the light of day in, uh, in Congress. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I have written about this subject. Uh, when you're talking about the House of Representatives, when you're talking about Congress, really a good bit, if not most, of what a lawmaker does in that chamber has to do with the committee that they're assigned. And, you know, committee work allows you to develop expertise. It allows you to make a difference on the baseline of legislation as it's getting written. Uh, it's one thing to introduce bills, but ultimately those bills get sent off to the committee that has jurisdiction for them. And it's those committee members that will really determine what that bill ends up looking like. So if you're talking about something like Medicare for all, well, if you want to put a Medicare for all bill through the House of Representatives, you're going to have to go through the Energy and Commerce Committee, which has uh, health care jurisdiction. And you're also, if it involves uh, uh, any kind of revenue uh, to, to fund the program, you're going to have to go through the Ways and Means Committee, which uh, determines sort of all revenue. If you want to do a bill to change the housing system, create more affordable housing, you're going to probably have to go through the House, the House Financial Services Committee, which has jurisdiction over, over housing policy. If you're talking about climate change, you're going to have to go through energy and commerce once again, and probably ways and means if it has any sort of revenue in it. If you're building any kind of new program of any kind that distributes funds, you're probably going to have to go through the Appropriations Committee, which appropriates funds to specific purposes throughout the federal government. So all of these committees take on monumental importance. And right now we're in a situation where there aren't enough progressives on those committees relative to the numbers of progressives within the Democratic caucus in the House. Right. So Nancy Pelosi and her bid to retain the leadership of the party recently sort of uh, gave an olive branch uh, sort of arrangement of sorts to the progressive caucus, to the progressive, which uh, the progressives, which gained quite a bit of power in the midterm elections. It might not have been a blue wave per se, but it certainly demonstrated that the progressive agenda has a significant electoral strength and they have right. gone to Washington, D.C., flexing their muscles, so to speak. And so tell us a little bit about the deal that was hatched uh, yeah. to keep Pelosi in power, but to give uh, the Progressive Caucus a little bit more, um, a little bit more power, uh, whereas they exactly. traditionally held a, more of a kind of ceremonial role uh, inside the party. Right. So here's what happened. So uh, you're right to say that the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which has, uh, I think by the beginning of the next Congress, will have something like 90 or so members, about 40 percent of the entire Democratic caucus, uh, but it hasn't really flexed its muscles too much historically. Uh, in 2008, when the health care debate was going through Congress, progressives tried to take a stand on forcing a public option into the health care legislation. 
and ultimately they were unsuccessful. Um, whether it was because of leadership in the caucus or uh, just the fact that Democrats just took that caucus for granted, they haven't had a lot of power. But this was a moment. So Nancy Pelosi wants to become speaker, and the only way she can become speaker is if she gets 218 votes on the floor of the House of Representatives on January 3rd. That means that she needs the votes of virtually every Democrat who will be in the next Congress. And for that reason, pretty much every Democratic constituency has the ability to go to Nancy Pelosi and say, "Okay, you want my vote. Here's what you're going to have to do. And so Mark Pocan and Pramila Jayapal, who are the two co-chairs now of the Progressive Caucus, new leadership, relatively speaking. Uh, Jayapal was a vice chair last year. Pocan just became a, a, a co-chair, I think, in 2016 or 2017. So they went to Pelosi and said, OK, if you want the votes of this 90 member caucus, which you need in order to become speaker, we want more proportional representation on these very important committees through which almost all critical domestic legislation flows through. And those are the four committees I mentioned before, energy and commerce, ways and means, financial services, and appropriations. The idea being if you get more progressives on those committees, then those progressives are in on the ground floor as this legislation is being made. And we actually have an example of when progressives weren't on the ground floor when legislation was being made, and it had a disastrous effect. And that was the Dodd-Frank bill. Hmm. So um, the House Financial Services Committee, after 2008, after two successive wave elections where a lot of Democrats got into power, the, the House leadership typically reserved those committee assignments on financial services for what they call frontline members. These are members that uh, were going to be in tight races probably for the rest of their careers because they were in swing districts. And the reason they put all these frontline members, most of whom were new Democrats or blue dogs, centrist Democrats, the reason they put them on is because if you're making decisions about the financial services industry, suddenly you have access to a lot of campaign donations from the financial services industry. And so this was sort of a, a strategy by the House leadership to say, okay, well, we'll put these frontline members on financial services and they'll be able to suck up a bunch of donations and that will help them in their elections. The problem is, is that the financial services committee suddenly after the financial crisis became somewhere where key legislation had to be built. And that was Dodd-Frank. And very predictably, these frontline centrist members voted against a lot of priorities that progressives wanted in that Dodd-Frank bill. Uh, the most uh, the, the most stark example of this is uh, with respect to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Mm -hmm. And Democrats wanted it to cover, you know, pretty much all major financial transactions. But a Republican put in an amendment to say, well, car dealers should be exempt from the CFPB. Now, what was his rationale for making car dealers exempt? Well, this guy, this Republican who put the amendment together was a car dealer. 
<laughs> that, that, that was kind of the reason. Funny he that. Fact, he, in fact, owned car dealerships that he was collecting rent on uh, at the time that he made this amendment. But the frontline members said, hey, we can get a lot of campaign donations from car dealerships, which is prominent in their districts. Every district has a car dealer, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the archetype of that kind of uh, regional, local notable, that kind of petty bourgeois kind of uh, mover and shaker, right? Exactly. Car dealership owner. And so those Democrats, those centrist Democrats, voted with the Republican on that amendment. And car dealers are now exempt from uh, oversight from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So that's a perfect example of how who is on these committees really, really matters. And so Pocan and Jayapal came into this meeting with Nancy Pelosi and said, we need proportional representation. If we're 40% of this caucus, we want to be 40% of the seats on ways and means. We want 40% of the seats on appropriations and financial services and energy and commerce. And Pelosi, because she needs those votes to be speaker, said yes. So uh, that is a major step forward for progressives to really get a foothold on these key committees. But the problem sort of came the day after this decision was made. Okay. All right. So tell me a little bit about the, let's, let's, let's backtrack. I want to talk about the, the implementation of, of that, that arrangement. That's, that's where the rubber hits the road. And it seems like we're really running against, uh, some, some cross cutting dilemmas that have a lot of causes that will be difficult to, to, you know, easily rectify across the board. But let's backtrack for the, for the sake of my audience a little bit. As I, as I prefaced, uh, multiple times, my audience, you know, we're good democratic socialists. You know, you add, you, you want to talk us about, uh, talk to us about what's in the communist manifesto or, or what we think about Bernie Sanders. You know, we can give you, uh, we can talk your ear off. But when it comes to the ins and outs of the congressional progressive caucus, uh, the, right. the various figures, the leaders, the names, the committees, the history there, uh, we're, we're all, myself included, uh, way less fluent. In that yeah. realm, and and I think it's really important for us to get this right and to and to become experts, all of us, on these yeah. types of topics, so that we can not only just you know sort of celebrate and pat ourselves on the back that we have the AOCs uh, and the uh, and, and those types of folks elected into the House and at various state levels as well. There will be parallels here in, in the state legislatures for sure, uh, but we now we need to see this through. So. Yeah. Um, Talk to talk to us a little bit about the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus. Who okay. are the key figures here? Um, what you know, it, it seems to be a very oh mishmash of people from the latest Kennedy all the yeah. way to say Pramila Jayapal, right. people who are much more through and through progressive in their aims. And of course, you throw in Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who is perhaps the furthest to the left. Uh, in that bunch. And, and you even have almost a caucus within a caucus, which is now emerging, which is almost kind of like a, uh, you know, a left of the New Deal Democrat uh, kind of wing of that caucus as well. So, yeah. What is the Congressional Progressive Caucus? Well, it was actually founded uh, by a guy you might know of named Bernie Sanders. Uh, <laughs> we, this was back when he was in the House of Representatives yeah. and he wanted a place. He wanted a caucus to bring together progressive Democrats uh, that that hopefully would give, you know, in that in that sort of collection to give them a little bit more power. The caucus, I would say, in the years since it was founded, 
has become a way for some members to put a label on themselves that inoculates them from some criticism by saying, look, I'm a progressive. I'm a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Now, obviously, as you said, there's a wide ideological range within this caucus. Uh, you go all the way from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to there are several members of the Progressive Caucus who are also members of the New Democrat Caucus, which is the centrist right. uh, Wall Street friendly caucus in the in in the Democratic uh, uh, section of the House. So that's a little puzzling, right? I mean, why? How could someone be part of both necessarily, unless you see it as sort of a badge that you can wear to say, "I am a progressive. Look at me." Um, so the question is, why is that sort of tolerated? Why is that allowed? Shouldn't you mm -hmm. pick side here? Uh, and there are differing schools of thought. One of them is. Well, if we want to have influence as progressives, we need uh, to accept as big a tent as possible. And that enables us to say that we're 40 percent of the entire Democratic caucus and throw our weight around a little bit. The other school of thought is that, well, that's all fine and good, but that doesn't mean a whole lot if we have members of the progressive caucus who are voting against progressive priorities on the floor. Uh, and if there's, you know, not a unified front among us, then that weakens us to a certain extent. And that debate has sort of gone back and forth over the years. I think we're in a moment where uh, there's going to be a little bit more tightening up of what it means to be a progressive. And you could see uh, you could see the leadership more comfortable with fewer members that are more ideologically cohesive. And, uh, you know, right now they're trying to get 40 percent representation. So I think they want to maximize uh, the, the, the numbers. But I think over this two year cycle, particularly when votes are particularly, you know, uh, controversial or 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 what have you, I think you're going to see a little bit more tightening up of that. And as you mentioned, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has mentioned this idea of doing a caucus within the caucus. Uh, like a sub caucus that really is sort of more hardline and says, we won't vote for this thing that's a must pass bill that you need all Democrats to vote for if we don't get this particular piece of legislation within it. Um, and I mean, you've seen that sort of at an abstract level with Ocasio Cortez's fight over this select committee to put together a Green New Deal package. You know, I mean, she she attended a protest at Nancy Pelosi's office to uh, try to force Pelosi to create this this special select panel that would have the ability to write legislation that would, uh, you know, further a Green New Deal. Uh, what's interesting about that is that Ocasio-Cortez, while doing that, and getting some sort of promises there has also been very active in saying, I want to be on one of these committees because inevitably, even if that select committee writes legislation, it's probably going to have to go through Wayne's and Means if it has any revenue attached to it. So now uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez is saying, I want to be part of the Ways and Means Committee. And that's pretty rare for a freshman Democrat. Now we get into sort of the, 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 the weird traditions uh, of the, the, the Congress. 
And it, when you're talking about the House of Representatives and you're talking about these special committees, sometimes they're called the money committees right. because they have to do with all the money, uh, financial services, appropriations, energy and commerce and ways and means. Typically, freshman members are not going to get those assignments right off the bat. And what we have now, though, is a very large freshman caucus, something like 60 freshman members. Uh, and there's this promise around progressives getting 40 percent of the seats. And so uh, that might have to change just as a matter of mathematics. You're going to have to put some some uh, freshman Democrats onto these important committees. And and what's been hard over uh, the years is getting it uh, clear in the heads of progressives that these committees really matter. You know, I've had it expressed to me uh, that uh, progressives come to Congress to change the world and new Democrats come to Congress to get on the Ways and Means Committee. <laughs> they know how you build power in Congress. They know that you have to be very aggressive in order to get these seats so that you will have influence uh, and, and, and build up seniority over time, uh, potentially become the chair of the committee uh, or the chair of a subcommittee within that committee. So um, that's the real sort of divide. I, I, I've kind of rambled here and I don't know that's if I've quite all right. Well, you've addressed the question. I want to get to some of the impasses to actually implementing uh, right. th- those those kinds of situations because that's that's the real – again, as I've said, that's where the rubber hits the road here. But let's backtrack a little bit and I want to talk a little bit about the way this uh, the, the progressive – caucus functions and some of the debates around the progressive caucus in terms of trying to give it a little bit more teeth, give it some right. some real oomph, some power rather than this kind of ceremonial power, this kind of sheepdog role that it, it, it is uh, accused of playing, you know, <laughs> accusations coming from segments uh, further to the left. And I think they're not yeah. entirely wrong about that. Uh, you have a Dennis Kucinich who sort of makes a lot of noise in, in the right directions, right, during the primaries and then sort of, uh, sort of uh, you know, ends up sheepdogging for the, the new Democrat or the blue dog uh, in, in worst cases. So let's talk a little bit about how uh, strategies to give the progressive caucus a little bit more teeth. I think that you've already talked about one. There's two schools of thought here. On the one hand, we're starting to get numbers on our side. Now, when I, when I say we, that's a contested, uh, you know, that's a contested <laughs> collectivity, right? I mean, as you mentioned, there are people who caucus with the new Democrats as well as the CPC. So who's we? Who are we? Should we allow that? Should we not allow that? But But the larger implication there is, do they have a big tent approach where they try to expand their numbers, uh, you know, across just numerically and overwhelm the rest of the, the, the entire party as in that way? Or do they sort of uh, close ranks and purify their members wherein they start whipping votes and they take advantage of these close margins that exist between the Democrats and the Republicans? Right. right. I mean, so, so the, the key there is when you have a very close, uh, clo- hotly contested house, as we do now and as we have, it, it, it only takes a few members here and there if they stand together to, to really, uh, you know. Uh, That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, uh, the, the house uh, at the beginning of the next Congress, it's likely going to be 235 Democrats and 200 Republicans, something in, in, in that range. Mm-hmm. And you need 218 to get a majority vote. 
And that means if you have 18 members of the Democratic caucus, suddenly you have power. Uh, you, you, you have the ability to swing an, an entire vote. Uh, sometimes it's going to be even less than that if there's something where certain moderates are going to vote with the Republicans on a piece of legislation. So there are ways to, uh, you know, sometimes it's described as a freedom caucus of the left. And, and, you know, the freedom caucus was the very hard right ideologues who did this routinely hijacked legislation, said we want, you know, our, our thing, uh, uh, respected and, and, and part of that legislation. And, uh, we're often successful in getting Republicans to, uh, change their, their policy preferences to something more along the lines of what the Freedom Caucus wanted. Uh, there's, uh, there's kind of a, a debate over whether you would want Democrats, you know, progressive Democrats to mimic that in order to maximize their power or not. I mean, the difference is, and I've heard Pramila Jayapal say this particularly, is that, you know, the Freedom Caucus is kind of anti-government. They don't want anything to happen, really. Uh, uh, their, their preferred legislation is no legislation. In a sense, they can burn it all down and they end up yeah. winning in the, in the process, right? That's right. Whereas uh, progressives want an activist government. They want government to do things that are important. And if government does something that is, you know, uh, uh, they just don't have as much of a chance to burn it all down, right? They might take half a loaf if it's going to advance something. Uh, so that's kind of the debate internally, I think, uh, uh, among progressive Democrats. I think there are going to be in the new Congress moments where you see progressives talk about and probably pull off banding together to, to make sure they get uh, certain asks. We've already seen it, right, with uh, the, the, the ask for more committee power. So, you know, you're seeing a progressive caucus start to think a little bit more strategically about their role and what they can do with their, you know, the, the ways to maximize their power and influence. Uh, but as we've been teasing this entire discussion, <laughs> the, 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 the rubber hits the road That's right. when you actually need the numbers. You actually need people to say, yes, I want to be on the Appropriations Committee. I want to be on the Ways and Means Committee. And uh, that has not been quite as easy as you think it might be. Right. So let's let's get into the nitty gritty there about that. I mean, that that's uh, you would think that you're dangling these uh, top uh, money committees in front of these, uh, you know, in some cases, junior or rookie representatives that they would jump at the chance. But that's just not the case. So what are some of the what are yeah. some of the contradictions in, entailed in, in getting those uh, slots filled by progressives? So I think there are two uh, kind of different uh, dynamics at play. So the first dynamic regards the new members, and we kind of went over the fact that this is not necessarily what some members of Congress come in to do. Uh, they, they just don't think along the lines of, I need to be on this committee because this committee has a lot of power. They might want gun legislation. That's my, might be why they got, they got uh, uh, elected, or they might be uh, really interested in climate policy, or they might be interested in LGBT rights, or they might be interested in immigration policy. Uh, and, and so it, it doesn't immediately come to mind that they want to be on a committee that has jurisdiction over 
you know, derivatives like uh, <laughs> financial services committee right, right. Uh, or tax policy, which can be very confusing. You know, a lot of these uh, progressive Democrats come out of uh, civil rights and, and, and the law and they gravitate towards judiciary. Judiciary is a committee where about 75 percent of the Democrats on that committee right now are progressives. And it's almost like a sorting mechanism. It's like clicks. You go towards where your people are, and that makes it easier for you to get things done. You don't want to necessarily have fights with your own caucus in, in trying to get legislation put together. And so you see this kind of ideological sorting that goes on on these committees where progressives go to the Judiciary Committee and centrists sometimes go to the Ways and Means Committee or whatever. So that's one thing you got to break through. You got to sort of educate and make aware to these freshmen that, no, actually, it's vitally important that you get on these committees that uh, have such a role to play in, in legislation domestically. So that's number one. Right. So it's like the lunch table at high school. But as, as I'm sure you're about to outline, uh, it's obviously criminal justice reform is, is big in the progressive imaginary right now. I mean, uh, Black Lives Matter has really no centered this, this uh, importance of just completely reforming and overhauling the criminal justice system, which overwhelmingly locks up uh, people of color and poor and, and immigrants as well now as well. But, but as you're about to mention, I'm sure, sorry to preempt you here, you yeah. can't really do a whole lot in the realm of criminal justice reform. If if you don't have access to the money committees, which are the where you're going to need to get the appropriations to, you know, to say rebuild our criminal justice system in a really robust way outside of just kind of tweaking the legal code. Uh, is, is, is that fundamentally right? That's certainly part of it. And the other part is that there there already are plenty of progressives on those committees. And, yeah, and, right. Exactly. You're just that already going to be written that way. We you know, there's there's almost an element. And there are some outside groups working on this who express this to me saying like, we need you to sacrifice. They, they've been they, really putting it in those words. Like, we know that this is what you came to Congress to do, but we're going to back you up if you do this for the movement and mm-hmm. go onto Energy and Commerce Committee uh, <laughs> and 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 work on specializing in healthcare legislation or prescription drug uh, reduction of mm-hmm. cost or uh, climate policy. We will back you up if, if, if you do this for us. So that's one thing. Then we have to talk about the existing members mm-hmm. who already have committee assignments. And the way that Congress works is that seniority is very important. That allows you to move up through the ranks. You get to get a subcommittee chairmanship and, and you can really sort of set what the hearings are and what the legislation looks like. You can uh, if you go all the way up, you become the chair of the uh, of the committee and seniority is critical to that. Mm-hmm. So how do you tell someone who's had four terms in Congress and gotten four terms worth of seniority on the Foreign Affairs Committee or, or something else and, and build up expertise and, you know, uh, really has has, you know, an issue set that they they like to talk about on this committee? How do you tell them, no, you need to switch now because we need progressives on the Appropriations Committee or whatever. Uh, it, 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 that's a difficult conversation. And, and, and those conversations have been had. And it's hard to get somebody to switch. Now, the, the, the key to all this is this fact. Actually, these two facts. Fact number one is that if you're serving on one of these money committees, the way it goes in, in the House is 
you're supposed to not be able to serve on any other committee. That's how exclusive and important these committees are. So that there's so you do as an existing member, you would have to switch. You would have to jump onto a committee and leave that other committee behind. However, as with everything in life, there's always a, a way out. Right. So uh, you can get a waiver from the leadership that says you can keep your committee assignment and you can go on to one of these money committees and we'll give you a waiver to do it. Now, there have been 20 waivers that have been handed out over the uh, in the current Congress for Democrats to serve on a money committee and another committee. And the vast majority of those are given to blue dogs and new Democrats. And the reason is they know about it. Ro Khanna, uh, who is a vice chair of the Progressive Caucus and a, a progressive member of Congress, told me he, he didn't think that progressives even knew about this, that, that this was even a possibility. So but if Jeez. this is taken more seriously and we, and we talk about waivers, then, you know, it's possible for someone like Pramila Jayapal, who has a, a huge interest in immigration. She actually went down to Mexico to be with the migrant caravan over the weekend. She can stay on the Judiciary Committee, which has jurisdiction over immigration, but she can also go on to Ways and Means. And that's what she wants to do. And if they give her a waiver, that's what she'll be able to do. And so, you know, it's it's one thing to just elect a very progressive representative, but then there's all these other factors that come into play that uh, it go move towards an understanding of how power gets built. Now, I'm going to bring one other thing into the discussion. There's uh, this group called the Steering and Policy Committee that actually hands out the committee assignments. So there's there's a committee within the Democratic Caucus that at, builds the seating charts, like a seating chart for a wedding, says you eight people are going to be here and you 10 people are going to be here on this committee and so on and so forth. The vice chairs, the chair of that committee is Nancy Pelosi. So she gets the ultimate say in who goes on what committee. The vice chairs have been laid out uh, late on Friday. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, she, she announced who the vice chairs be. And Barbara Lee, who last week lost this leadership race for the caucus chair to Hakeem Jeffries, she was named a vice chair to this steering and policy committee that determines the committee assignments. And uh, she was a new addition on that, uh, that steering and policy committee. It used to have two co-chairs, and now it has three. So here's a progressive icon who had uh, support from virtually all the progressives who were voting in uh, that leadership fight, who's now on the committee that determines leadership assignments and can be in a position to say, yes, we need to give these people waivers so that they can serve on two committees at the same time. That's important. And that's an obscure but important way that power is going to be built by progressives within the House of Representatives. Now, what is the likelihood of, say, uh, Pramila Jayapal getting that waiver so that she could uh, do take care of the immigration stuff, but also have uh, the power of the purse strings uh, in, in, in terms of being on ways and means right. or financial services or wherever else we need these uh, good, solid progressives and democratic socialists uh, to sit? 
I don't want to put a number on it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what the percentage of it. I do know that that is being openly discussed within Congress. And, uh, there, there is at least some likelihood of that happening. We're not going to know exactly where, where these committee assignments lay out. Uh, until probably after the lame duck session is over. Sometime between now and the end of the year is when we're going to figure out uh, whether progressives were successful uh, in this effort. But, you know, uh, Pelosi made a commitment. The commitment was 40% representation. And I don't see how she can get there without, you know, issuing some waivers and letting some freshmen on these committees. Uh, and likewise, the Progressive Caucus made a commitment. We want 40% representation. And so they're going to have to find the people who uh, can can yeah. be those 40% to get on those committees. So both sides have some work to do. But, uh, you know, I would say I'm moderately uh, hopeful that uh, they'll, they'll get it done. And that would be a, a real advance for progressives in the next Congress. And, you know, I mean, Donald Trump's going to veto progressive legislation. Let's just yeah. let's just lay that out. And and it probably won't even get through the Senate, which is in Republican hands right now. But these committees are important over time. Uh, as I said, seniority is important on these committees. We don't know where the Congress is going to be 10, 15 years down the road. And having progressives in those, you know, upper echelons of these committees when the time comes uh, and, and, and we get a burst of progressive legislation with a president that would be willing to sign it. Uh, so it's important to lay the groundwork now. And that's why this is important. It would seem in addition to that, that it's even more it's, it's very important for them to, to kind of take this, this risk and to assert their power while they have their while their, their names are hot. I mean, AOC's brand has never been hotter. And yep. uh, at this point, you know, she, she's striking while, he, while that iron is, is uh, white hot. And yeah. how, how better to have a claim that she, as a rookie rep, uh, should have this kind of waiver and, and be immediately ushered into, you know, one of these money, money committees by, by offing the former caucus chair? Uh, Joe Crowley, you know, if you can be if, in my mind, if you can beat the caucus chair, the heir apparent to the throne of the Speaker of the House, uh, you know, you, you probably ought to be able to get on a muddy committee right off the bat. I mean, I think you earned it at that point. Yeah. One thing that's that's interesting is that Joe Crowley, when when he served in Congress, was on the Ways and Means Committee. And so Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is making the argument that if I'm replacing that guy, if I'm replacing the, the former caucus chair, Joe Crowley, I should get his committee assignment. And his committee assignment was Ways and Means. That's the specific argument that she's making uh, to the uh, House leadership in, in trying to get this Ways and Means slot. And we'll see what happens. But as you said, she has uh, uh, the ability to raise awareness. Uh, and certainly if she's denied that she has the ability to make a, a real stink about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that will, that will be part of the calculation. I guarantee you among the house leadership. I think, you know, people following in, uh, Ocasio-Cortez's footsteps, for example, or now Rashida Tlaib, uh, in Michigan. I mean, it really, sure. really inspiring people, uh, from the, the left, uh, progressive left there, you know, many, many cases aligning themselves with democratic socialists. 
I think it's important for those people to be able to slot in to an existing power structure in the House uh, because it sends a signal to those who might be thinking about throwing their hat in the ring in 2020. These good, solid, young, uh, progressive uh, leftists who, who want to go to Washington and, and actually make a difference. It sends a signal that like, yeah, you belong here. You should you should throw your hat in the ring. You should challenge that blue dog Democrat. You should challenge that new Democrat. And and there's a place for you here, and you can do good solid work. And we can slot you in uh, right off the bat and, and and do some good things. One thing they're doing is kind of upsetting this common wisdom that you get to Congress and you have to wait your turn. You're a backbencher. Uh, you, 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 you'll, you'll get what scraps we give you and you just got to wait your turn. And, uh, I would say this little, this small, but, but very, uh, uh, aggressive crew. And you're talking about Rashida Tlaib. You're talking about Alexandria. You're talking about Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley. They're saying, no, we're not here to be backbenchers. We're here to make a difference and make a difference right away. And uh, we're not going to be, you know, pushed down or silenced. We're going to go for, uh, uh, you know, the maximum available influence and power uh, while we're here. And uh, you're seeing that with uh, AOC. You're seeing that with Rashida Tlaib, who uh, has uh, bluntly asked to be on the Appropriations Committee. She's also uh, planning a, a congressional delegation to the occupied territories in uh, the West Bank, which would be the first time ever uh, that there was a congressional delegation that would that would visit uh, the West Bank and, and, and or Gaza. Uh, it's just enormous because there's there's this annual freshman trip that APAC puts on uh, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee every year. Usually Steny Hoyer is uh, who's the majority leader, the second number two in command. In the House leadership, he usually leads this delegation and hundreds of uh, members have have gone on this trip. And it's a, you know, a fairly one sided view of things in in, within Israel. And uh, this would be an opportunity to see, you know, a more uh, well-rounded version of that. And so just that alone shows you that the difference that can be made by a freshman Democrat that doesn't have to see themselves as just sort of a go along to get along backbencher. And and so that's really inspiring. I think it's an excellent example of the kind of um, virtuous circle, this kind of um, this um, critical mass effect that can take place, this interaction between the sort of grassroots social movements and electoral politics. Um, I think a lot of leftists and progressives are very oriented in this grassroots kind of move, what I've called movementism in a kind of (laughs) polemical sort of way, wherein they completely neglect the vast capacities that are wielded by the state and the kind of pulpit that you get as an elected representative and the kind of changes you can make uh, almost unilaterally. I mean, no, I'm pretty sure no one is, you know, instructed Rashida Tlaib to, to, to do this, but, right. uh, you know, she, she on her own volition sort of uh, took this up as a really important thing herself being, um, Palestinian American, if I'm not mistaken, That's I'm not correct. sure exactly what kind of, uh, you know, kind of ties she still has to that region. Many, many, many Palestinian Americans, uh, has, still have family there and whatnot, but, uh, I it's exciting she- stuff for sure. It's exciting. Yeah, I think, I think leftists would be remiss in ignoring if they if we if we ignored those uh, those real potentials. 
yeah, I think she does have family members there. And, and yeah, I, I, I think uh, you're, you're spot on in terms of thinking that, yes, the outside is, is critical and it's important to push uh, our leaders and lead them in the direction we want them to go. But also having power on the inside doesn't hurt. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. So, so we have to work on both of those, those things simultaneously. So I think everyone is trying to find the kind of Archimedean point here, whether you're, you find yourself on the right, the left, the center, the far left, the democratic socialist left, where this podcast generally aligns. And, um, you know, the progressives are trying to do this as well. I, you know, I'm, I myself, I've said this on the show and I'll say it again. I'm, I'm really impressed by with with what the the progressives have been able to do you look at the justice democrats you look at um what those folks have been able to do and i think people on my wing of the left the democratic explicitly democratic socialists have to have a lot to learn about the kind of uh, embeddedness that you know that, that they've achieved over the past decade or so of just working very patiently and integrating themselves in these structures and, and getting the results that they've gotten. I think you know, as I said, I give give my side a little tough love here or or what have you, a little gentle criticism. You know, I think AOC has broadly uh, been uh, you know sort of advertised as being the DSA candidate. Right. But that but but we all sort of know deep that's not really the case. Right. The Justice Dems recruited her. They they bred uh, they, they, sure. they sort of uh, seeded the ground on which uh, she was able through her superior talent and, and willpower, I think, uh, really succeed on. And uh, we could take a lesson from that. And one of the key debates that we're having here on the Democratic Socialist left of this progressive movement and I think there's a tremendous amount of continuity there. I think a lot of people on the left, I mean, this is an argument I have to make. I don't think that's taken for granted here, but I look at us as, as, as uh, very much in tandem here in terms of what we're trying to pull off. Is mm-hmm. this, this, this question of how do we ensure some kind of uniformity? How do we ensure that the candidates that we send into the halls of power will be responsive and accountable uh, to their electorate? And, mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, people are thinking very seriously about forcing candidates who want to go to, say, DSA chapters, for example, or our revolution chapters or what have you, and, and demand some kind of pledge around uh, campaign finance reform. Mm-hmm. And I had an interesting conversation with uh, your colleague, friend of the show here, Daniel Marins about uh, some of the limitations of demanding uh, campaign pledge, campaign finance-oriented pledges right off the bat. One of the alternatives to that would be pushing instead to for the Congressional Progressive Caucus, for example, to start whipping votes, to start mm-hmm. demanding certain things of their members. Uh, right. My initial thought here, and, and let me know if you think I'm on to something, is that I think the whipping votes and, and demanding more uniformity uh, has to precede making demands out of individual candidates about campaign finance. Because I'm afraid that what we would be doing is cutting off the, the money supply that's desperately needed by some of these candidates to get off the ground in the first place. There's a, certain, right. there's a certain dynamic where you might sort of cut off your nose to spite your face. And, uh, you know, money's lifeblood here. And not everyone who accepts money is, is inherently bad or evil or just waiting to sell out their constituency. But, but what are your thoughts on that? What, what do you think in, in terms of that debate? What's the Archimedean point wherein progressives and, and, and democratic socialists can, can try to guarantee some kind of accountability from their elected officials? Well, that's a good question. You know, on the one hand, it's definitely true that if you ask your political uh, would-be candidates to unilaterally disarm at the the outset of a campaign, it's going to be difficult for them to carry that campaign out. So, you know, I mean, I agree with you there. 
to an extent. Uh, at the same time, I would say that, you know, it, it is not required or incumbent upon these various factions, whether you're talking about Justice Democrats or our revolution or whoever, DSA, to endorse candidates if they feel that they they aren't getting the kind of answers that they want out of them. I mean, uh, you know, sure. it's and just as it's not incumbent upon unions or uh, even chambers of commerce to endorse candidates uh, that they feel uh, aren't aren't aligned with them. These endorsements do have to mean something. And if you want to extract a promise out of a candidate uh, in exchange for that endorsement, then I say that's that's the entire purpose of uh, those types of interest groups. That So that should certainly be part of the game. Uh, when you're talking about whipping votes, I, th- I think those two are, are a bit mutually exclusive. You know, one, you're talking about sort of the run up to a campaign and the endorsement process. And the other, you're talking about, you know, legislating. And uh, I think that looking at it from the outside, I think there's more room for the Progressive Caucus to whip their members, certainly. I think that members need to be accountable to those who got them into office. And so if you're in our revolution chapter and you're our revolution endorsed candidate uh, makes a decision that you don't agree with, you should certainly have a desire to hold them accountable for that and, 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 and force them to explain themselves because ultimately, you know, uh, you're the power base that, that put them into where they are. You know, I mean, when we, uh, when somebody gets elected, I would say that, uh, who were the primary, uh, kind of movers who got them into that position are the ones who matter and have the best opportunity to hold them to account. Uh, you know, it, 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 it almost matters a little less what the, uh, personal mindset of those individual candidates is as much as who they're beholden to in a certain respect, if that makes sense. Uh, uh, you know, if Justice Democrats did the work and got somebody elected uh, and and that that person has to know that throughout the rest of the two year cycle of which they're in the House of Representatives. And if they do something while in office that goes against the principles of Justice Democrats, they should know that Justice Democrats isn't going to be as enthusiastic about doing that same work on their behalf uh, once again. So I think who gets you there is as important as who you are in some respects. Right. I think that's well said. I mean, there are larger debates that be had about sort of how do we build a robust kind of left hegemony in Congress and in society. And I think, you know, that's where, in my mind, we'd have a little bit more flexibility about maybe say like what I'm concerned about is more of an order of operations kind of uh, tactic. I mean, you know, of course, I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not exactly sure where this money comes from. You might sort of uh, commit to small donors, but then you're getting funneled money from the party, which is just sort of repackaged uh, large donors and things like that. And so fundraising is, a, needless to say, far far more than even what I, I know for sure. Fundraising uh, and, and forcing those kind of promises is very fraught kind of uh, territory. It's my, I'm, I'm, under the standing, I'm under the understanding, for example, say, if you get DCCC funding or what have you, that's a way around these small donor 
pacts, but um, but it doesn't, right. it doesn't. Yeah. So so the bottom line is it's it's fraught territory. And it's difficult to know and hold people accountable uh, to whether or not they're even uh, co- co- cohering, conforming rather to to those uh, agreements. But uh, but anyway, yeah. It's 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 these are interesting questions. They're being forced on the table in a in new way. And in a way that we haven't uh, had the luxury of, of asking them. And I'm looking forward to these debates. Let me just add one thing. I mean, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was outspent something like 10 to 1. Right. Great point. Yeah. And the corporate interests certainly had a, a lot of incentive to keep Joe Crowley in office, but they weren't able to do it. And the reason was that Alexandria was able to go out to the people and say that this individual has lost touch with your struggle. This man who represents you is not actually representing you. And that's uh, certainly possible. I feel like progressives are at a point right now where they can uh, work their will in races in deep blue seats. Uh, Maybe not necessarily as much in uh, more swing districts, although there are instances where you can say that, yes, progressives were able to defeat more moderate candidates and go on and win the general election. Uh, in my backyard here in, in California, Katie Porter, who ran as a pretty steadfast progressive, beat a few moderates in her primary and ended up winning the general election in Orange County, where, where Democrats were able to sweep. So it is possible. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that money can be one factor, but the other factor is, you know, the the legwork of campaigning, the making your argument to to the public in your particular district that you would be the best representative of them. And so we shouldn't lose sight of that money may be important, but it's not the only thing that matters in these political campaigns. Right. That's right. It seems to me that the new Dems and the Blue Dogs for sure are uh, they, they no longer have a message that widely resonates with the American people. And so oftentimes they have to sort of triangulate or hide what they really think. And I think that duplicitousness and, and that, that unwillingness to sort of state their case openly uh, played against them. And Joe Crowley's uh, sort of uh, burying his head in the sand didn't play well. Uh, to that right. district, uh, for sure, and AOC prevailed by a long shot. So let's wind this uh, let's wind this discussion up with a little hypothetical that plays into everything we've laid out for the audience thus far. Yeah. Let's take Medicare for all, for example. But we could just as easily use, you know, say the Stop Bezos Act, you know, that's sort of being introduced here. Thought about we could use uh, in a far more complicated uh, way. We could use uh, something like a hypothetical Green New Deal to illustrate this point. But let's take Medicare for all, sort of the okay. flagship progressive democratic socialist, uh, what I would call a non-reformist reform, something that really changes the logic of the commoditization of commodification rather of, of healthcare and society. Mm-hmm. What kind of committees uh, would a legislative package sort of have to travel through? What are some of the, the traps along the way with various members of the democratic party, for example, in that, in those caucuses? Cause I think this is, again, this is where the rubber hits the road. Um, right. And we'll, we'll have to start thinking very pra- practically about how to implement these policies that have a wide public buy-in. Right. So I uh, mentioned before that if you're going to do any kind of health care policy, just go back and look at uh, Obamacare in 2009 and 2010. Between the two chambers, the House and the Senate, that legislation passed through five committees. So uh, two in the Senate and three in the House. 
Uh, in the House, you had the Energy and Commerce Committee, which uh, dealed with aspects of the basic legislation, Ways and Means, which deal with the financing of Obamacare, and uh, I believe Education and Labor was also involved in a certain respect, but don't quote me on that, but I know there was a third committee involved okay. as well. Uh, on the Senate side, it was similar. It was the Health Committee which is Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, uh, as well as the Senate Finance Committee, which does, you know, the, 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 the revenue projections and the financing. So that's a lot of people getting their hands on, on this policy. And, and Medicare for All would travel along the exact same lines. Uh, it, it, you would have to go through those five different committees Having all of the members of those committees have, have some say at some point in the legislation, although the chairs obviously have the greatest say, uh, and then going to the floor and, and perhaps surviving an amendment process and, and getting through that way. Uh, there's you know so much to be thought about when you're talking about nationalizing the healthcare system, or at least the health insurance system. You have to think about you know the, the state of the system as it exists today which is uh, supremely concentrated both on the insurer side and even more so on the provider side when you're talking about hospitals and drug companies and medical device makers all of these markets are you know show a great deal of power in a great uh, a few number of hands and you know the idea is that if you have a single payer that does all the payments for all of these services that suddenly you have only one person that you're negotiating with and that entity, the government, has the ability to drive down these costs because they're, you know, it's their way or the highway. If you, that will be determined by what it looks like on the other side of that transaction. If the other side of that transaction is also sort of a monopoly, then you have an irresistible force and an immovable object. And the providers can just as well say, well, if you're not going to allow us to get a certain price for our services, then we'll just cut off service to everybody in the Pittsburgh area or wherever. Uh, if you have a more dispersed and more uh, competitive series of markets on the provider side of the equation, then you do have more uh, ability to negotiate and build, ability to drive down costs from the perspective of government. So just because Donald Trump isn't going to sign a single payer bill or Medicare for all bill tomorrow, that doesn't mean that work can't be done within this Congress to uh, ensure that there aren't unnecessary and extortionate concentrations of power on the healthcare provider end of the spectrum. And I think these are going to be really necessary in the coming years if we're going to make a Medicare for all style program work. So in addition to that, we've got some personnel problems in some of these subcommittees, uh, say in the Energy and Commerce Committee of the House of Representatives. Who are some of the Democrats uh, that have been sitting on those committees for quite some time that might serve as a roadblock to something like Medicare for all? Right. So there's a shakeup right now going on in the health subcommittee. So that would be the, the subcommittee with a lot of jurisdiction over prescription drugs, over uh, healthcare systems. And Anna Eshoo, who is a member out of Silicon Valley area, who is very tight with the biopharmaceutical industry, 
there was a fight in the uh, Affordable Care Act where she wanted longer patent protections for certain types of prescription drugs. She is poised to become the key subcommittee chairman of the health committee, uh, subcommittee in, in, in that uh, energy and commerce committee. So yeah, that would be problematic, I think. <laughs> it's not insurmountable because obviously if, if the entire caucus is working their will around something, then you know they're likely to get something appropriating what they want. But, you know, the devil's in the details. And the person who would write a lot of those details is Anna Eshoo. And so these are all things that you have to think about. You know, it's very complicated. But ultimately, if we're going to get to a good solution, we have to consider all of these factors. Wow. A lot to think about. Uh, this has been quite an education. I hope that people are paying close attention to this. Uh, you know, the, the difficulty of learning about these various committees and subcommittees uh, is, is not only, you know, that they themselves and their rules and the processes are very complicated, but the members who get shuffled in, in and out of the House uh, change every so often, as we well know, <laughs> in the in these uh, elections as they come and go throughout the years. And so, hey, you're doing a service uh, to the progressive left. David Dan, thanks so much for doing this work. Everybody should pay attention to that. You've got a project uh, that's in the works. We'll just wrap up very quickly on this sure. about the importance of uh, facing down monopolies. And of course, Bernie Sanders, as usual, is on the forefront of this. His Stop uh, Bezos Act has been uh, really instrumental in, in, in kind of scaring the shit out of uh, the likes of <laughs> Bezos and, and other monopolists who uh, typically – uh, have politicians in their back pockets. What do you make of this sort of new wave of anti-monopoly sentiment uh, in, in the United States? It's critically important. You know, I mean, we have a serious concentration problem in America. If you go down the line of virtually any sector, any product in the United States, there are just a, a, a small number of companies that are, are delivering that. We have four major airlines. We have four major banks. We have uh, uh, really, uh, depending on what area of the country you're in, pretty much one major cable company that you can actually subscribe to. Uh, uh, you just go on and on and on and down the line. And uh, over the last few years, there has been a group of academics, of scholars, of thinkers that have really pinpointed this as a huge problem, not just for consumer prices, because that's the thing you think about. If you have a monopoly, you can charge whatever rate you want for your goods or services. But it goes much deeper than that. It, it you know, monopolies affect wages. Monopolies affect quality of service. They affect inequality. They affect democracy itself. You look at uh, you know a company like Facebook. So what I am uh, working on is a book that really shows what monopolies mean to everyday people. And so I'm uh, interviewing individuals who have been affected by monopoly in their daily lives, whether they're workers or entrepreneurs or citizens who are just trying to, to go through their days. And that book will probably come out not until you know, next year, maybe even maybe even 2020. I don't have an exact date on it, but I'm very excited about the project. And I think it's critically important to view these things in terms of how they affect people's lives in a very visceral, very real way. 
I think that's absolutely right. If there ever was a bipartisan political issue, and I hate that word, but I think we both agree, an issue that transcends the very limited way in which the dominant wings of both parties have constrained our political awareness and our political consciousness, it would be this kind of anti-monopoly movement. Uh, One of the things that I keep reading about, and, and it's just horrifying, it's like nightmare fuel are these uh, arbitration clauses that pop up everywhere. That's yeah. it's not just, you know, as you mentioned, it's not just a, an issue about democracy and prices and, and consumer rights. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's about your very health and safety as to whether or not. Right. Uh, you're talking about access to justice there. When you're talking about arbitration, you're talking about the fact that you cannot get a cell phone contract that does not have an arbitration clause in it. Yeah. So it, if you are ripped off, by your cell phone company, they know that you are not going to be able to take them to court. You're going to have to go through this onerous process where they handpick the arbitrators. Right. Uh, and, and they know that most people, if they're not insane, aren't going to go through that, right? So that gives them a carte blanche, basically, to nickel and dime their customers because nobody's going to go to an arbitration court for a dollar. And so maybe they're overcharging you for a dollar and that sounds like it doesn't mean anything, but think about a dollar a month for the tens of millions of subscribers that they have and pretty soon you're talking about real money. And so being able to cut off the access to justice, it's not just a, a problem of being ripped off, it's a problem of having your rights taken away, your rights as a citizen to sue if you, uh, you know, have a grievance. And that's what these arbitration clauses do. And uh, so that's a much deeper issue than just the, the, the robbery in itself. It's saying that you are helpless as an individual uh, in the face of concentrated corporate power. And that, that's something that we have to stop. Well said and well put. It seems that this kind of uh, feeling that we all have that we're slipping into these kind of neo-feudal relationships wherein our corporate overlords sort of uh, control every aspect of our life. I mean, the only option there is to opt out completely. But where does that leave you? I mean, in this day and age, uh, you know, can you operate without a washing machine, without a cell phone, without the bare necessities of a, a, you know, remotely relative life? Uh, Certainly you cannot, which leaves us once again in the clutches of these corporate overlords. So, yeah. And which is why we have laws on the books and have had them for a hundred years to try to uh, prevent these deep concentrations of power that take away the liberties of Americans. And, uh, these laws are on the books. They're just not being enforced. And the key sort of linchpin of the anti-monopoly movement is to say, we need to pick up these tools that we actually have laying around in the closet and go after these corporate giants. Well, David, you're, you're in luck here because, I, as I mentioned uh, here on Dead Pundits, we're a democratic socialist uh, podcast. So I've got the solution. You can, it's, it's, this, this will be page one and, incidentally, the only page in the entire book. You just, you just nationalize and democratize it. That's it. The yeah, end. Yeah. Moving <laughs> along. <laughs> well, you've written my book for me now, so I think it's time uh, that I uh, – Right. I actually have a lot of free time now. So that's I right. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome. No, I'm glad that there's people out there fleshing out the real, real details because that's the important part. So, uh, David Dan, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pun. It's uh, come back and talk to us soon. All right, cool. Thank you very much. Oh, this new crazy mother. <laughs>